Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. We're working through a sermon series, Act Like Jesus, Core Practices of Our Faith. And it's not because these practices make us something we're not. We are what we are because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and how we surrender our lives to that. But in these acts, just like an athlete who trains, we equip ourselves to serve and to walk with Jesus. And so I want to keep that setting. We've looked at uh, worship. We've looked at prayer, Bible study. This morning, I want to think about this concept of surrender and total surrender. And in the chapter with the various Bible texts, I think it was verse 14 for this week, I've taken this one particular passage from the book of Daniel. And I often read the scripture with a historic practice called Lectio Divina, where I kind of read through and imagine what would it like to be right there, to be a part of this, or even to kind of bring it into the setting of my own life. And as I was doing that, there's a, a moment, you see, they set up this gold image, the king wants everybody to do that, and as they start their worship, they kick off a band. I couldn't help but be drawn back to events in my life. I remember seeing the Irish band, U2, at uh, FedEx Stadium. Um, This evening, I understand there'll be a football game at the Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) We, We see all these different sorts of things, and though this could look like a very different sort, we never bow down to a statue, go Redskins. We never stand up at a band and think, oh, if only I could. Let yourself translate this historical event into something that reflects the life that you were a part of. I've done that myself. Um, I'll try not to read that into uh, strongly, but you see, there's the text, and it does connect with our lives. I'm going to ask that you stand together as I read, if you're able of respect and appreciation for the Word of God. Hear the word as I read. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the band kicking off, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Mic drop. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with the three, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just picture that. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? The advisors replied, uh, well, uh, uh, certainly, your majesty. Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a, like, like, like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening, blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, perfects, governments, and royal advisors crowded around him. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads. Do you remember hair on their heads singed? Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and they defied my command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated if you would, and let me take a moment and pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your great love for us, that the transcendent God that you are, you have entered in to our world, the world that we inhabit, and you have appointed people, you have spoken through people, and as people have made decisions, you have shown us something of yourself. I thank you that as the history, the stories of Daniel and his life were gathered, that this one was uh, carefully recorded and we've been able to preserve it across centuries in amazing ways by your grace. And now we can open the scroll as it were. We can translate and read and ponder. But most of all, Holy Spirit, we ask you to complete this long process across centuries that you began. And now illumine our hearts and minds to receive the word and the guidance you would have for us. Fill us with great hope, we ask, in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people sit together. Amen and amen. Well, the story we read, the event that makes this moment has been a long time being worked up to. And I wanna give you a sense of that journey. It's not really all that helpful to just look at a moment without realizing exactly how you got there. The story starts with four kids from the neighborhood. Um, I'm saying same neighborhood, but that's something of a metaphor. The scripture in Daniel 1.3 says that these kids were born to royal family and nobility. 
and that they all showed aptitude for learning. They were well-informed and quick to understand. They'd been part of an elite schooled group, key leaders being raised from birth. Marilyn's been watching Downton Abbey of late, and this is the Crawleys and the Granthams. These are the leaders of that time. They're all from similar surroundings with similar capabilities. But as we will see by reading the entire book of Daniel, they would stick together more than they can know in their growing up years. There were hard times ahead, but they would go through those hard times together. Four kids from the neighborhood. These were friendships that mattered. They shared life, they shared time, they shared values, they encouraged one another, they stood with one another, they helped each other answer questions, consider opportunities. They were friendships that matter. Now, like I said, there's a privileged start, but there would be difficult times ahead. Have you ever noticed that there always are? No matter where you start, there will come a season where you go through circumstances you would not choose. And so the question becomes, how will you do that? There would come a moment for these four kids from the neighborhood that their world would be burned to the ground. You see, as they were growing up, Jerusalem was turned to rubble. Now the backstory there, this same king, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of Babylon, the mightiest power on the known planet at that point. That great power would send his army to overpower and demolish the tiny nation of Judah. Jerusalem that these four friends grew up in would be utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. We've been watching Masters of the Air, the kind of docudrama, the story of the 8th uh, Air Force and the bombings uh, in World War II. As I've watched that, I've remembered pictures I've seen of the fire bombing of Dresden in Berlin. Towards the end of the war, you see miles of hulks of building. It looks like parts of Ukraine right now, or even parts of Gaza. Talk about traumatic events. Those are the pictures that ought to come to mind when we think of what Jerusalem looked like. In their context, in their time, no, there were not bombers and bombs, but there was soldiers, there was fire, there was death, there was destruction, and then exile. These four are dragged off to Babylon to be retrained to work for the enemy. Jeremiah 29, 11 is something we all love. I've meditated on it many times. You'll see it on walls. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It doesn't say specifically, but it's a reasonable estimate that these four kids from the neighborhood might have been in that Babylonian refugee community that received that promise. So let the scripture be real, friends. Four traumatized young men, because trauma is what you would have from that experience, gathered together in a foreign land, and God says, I know the plans I have for you. That's who it comes to. It's not simply, I know the plans I have for you, for a new summer house and a marvelous vacation. 
It means whatever you're going through, I will be there and rescue you. These four friends, Jerusalem had been turned to rubble. That was trauma for them. And I I don't want to oversimplify this, but I, I want you to realize that kids have faced trauma and it's not been the end of life. Care for your traumas if you've experienced them. I I don't want to simplify or be unsympathetic, but I also want to offer a ray of hope. In the face of real trauma, there is real hope. That's how I want to put that. These four young men faced trauma like that, and yet God had a future and a plan for them because they would be taken to Babylon and educated in the ways of Babylon, it says, and they would be faithful to the Lord right there. And I call this while students, they're in school. The story of their life really picks up from Daniel chapter 1, verse 3, and it talks about them being trained. And if you remember that story, I'll sketch it out. They're being educated and everything is being provided for from Nebuchadnezzar. Their homeland is burning, but here they have the best of this new land. And they make a choice. They say, rather than be dependent for our provision on the king, we will eat what comes up at the Lord's hand, vegetables and water. See, what's going on in Daniel 1 is not about diet. It's about who do you trust Where do you look for your provision? The world and its ways or a king? What they were eating was not a kosher diet. It's not, oh, there's Babylon's diet and there's the kosher diet. No. Every now and then I'll read about a church that's committed out of faithfulness to live the Daniel diet. And about four months later, you'll hear word go around the community, boy, that church lost a a corporate four tons of body fat. Now, let me be the first in line to recognize I probably ought to take some weight off. But that's not what's happening in Daniel 1. Where do you look for your provision? To the king? To this new land, strange as it is? Or to God? You see, they sought to be faithful to the Lord while students to trust in him, to let him make their provision. They were shaped by the schooling, but only given tools from the school in which to live. They stayed faithful to living God. And so because of their good performance in school and the opportunity they were given and all that they could contribute back to Babylon, they were uh, given authoritative places in the government. They had a great job. And then a new story, chapter uh, 2. Something happens. The king has a dream, and he's troubled by it. It disturbs his mind, and he decides to run a test. He's going to ask all of his advisors to tell him the dream and interpret the dream. Now, interpreting would be hard enough, but telling them the dream, impossible. It's as if there's a king, a ruler, who's lost his mind. I could go several ways here, but let's just stick in the text and move on. 
something's crazy. And suddenly the whole slew of government officials and advisors are at risk. Who can tell a dream that the king won't even tell you? No. Daniel alone stands up and says, give me time. I will seek God. And he gathers his friends. You see how they've been together in this? He gathers them. They pray. And it says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Daniel urges his friends to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the Babylonian advisors. This is a tense, dangerous moment. But the story goes on. The Lord does show Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, as well as the interpretation. Daniel does deliver this information to the king. Verse 27, no one could explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel has no agenda of his own, nothing of his own benefit or profit. He sought God on behalf of the pagan king and the kingdom. God has equipped him to serve and to be a blessing. This is a moment when the transcendent God intersects the imminent life of the king. Nebuchadnezzar's closed box world, you tell me what I want to know, is suddenly opened up to something beyond just his controllable world. Daniel and his friends are navigating even their work life. They survived the trauma, they navigated school, now they're working through life, and they're being promoted. But chapter three, the story goes on. In this chapter, Daniel's not mentioned, but there is this moment where the king establishes an idol, brings everyone together to worship it. There's nefarious plans behind that. Those are the schemes of these three um, servants' uh, enemies. Suddenly, they're faced with a choice. Will we join in and worship, or will we face the consequences? And you heard me read the story. They say, King, we're not going to bow down and worship. We've settled that with God. God can deliver us or he cannot, but we know where we stand in this. You hear in them not so much a strength and a resolve. We're going to prove you wrong, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to triumph over your demands. Just watch this. We're going to beat you on this. No, there's the resolve of people who are taking orders from some other place. I hear what you say. I see the consequences but I choose to obey a higher law. Every time I read through this, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King in a Birmingham jail and the letter he writes there saying, we're called to live first to the law of God, wherever that takes us, whatever the consequences are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, we have surrendered to the great God, so we won't do what you ask. That God has the power to deliver, but even if he doesn't, there's a security of having surrendered to someone greater than Nebuchadnezzar. What's the greatest thing in your life? What's, what's pulling your strings, pushing your buttons? What if there was something greater than that? 
What if living in concert with that, in obedience to that greater thing, what would it look like to live? Well, we see what it looks like in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what the surrendered life is about. I remember almost 30 years ago, reading the books of Andrew Murray. He was a 19th century pastor. He was South African, grew up in Scotland, but became a pastor with the Dutch Reformed in South Africa. His life is so different than mine. But I remember when I first read the book, Humility, and then I read the next book, Freedom from the Self-Centered Life. I remember thinking, I've never heard this sort of thing. It was like a a word from another universe. Humility? I didn't go to school for that. Humility? How do you lead a growing church? Humility? And then I came across his book, Absolute Surrender. And I began to see that living fully surrendered to God was the key to living a flourishing life in the world because this world, even if it, in its brokenness, is God's and he is the one at work. It's not always an easy life to surrender to God means you may be out of step with the world, but to surrender to God and his calling means to live a life that serves others well. You know, the best thing that ever happened to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon was that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surrendered to the Lord and lived faithfully to him. They were good administrators. They would not be manipulated. They were above reproach. And even with, when threatened with death, they were faithful. These four friends, the three in the furnace and Daniel, were surrendered to the Lord and not their circumstances. Daniel and his friends excelled in Babylon, not because of their effort or their luck or their privilege, but because of their faithfulness of the Lord. That's the message of the book of Daniel, that in trying times, faithfulness to God, no matter what the cost appears to be in the short term, always brings the blessing of God, even if it might be a quick trip to heaven. Again, let's be honest. Some of these things can be very, very difficult. So I want you to to see that the key that gets them in the fire and out of the fire, irregardless, freedom comes from a life of surrender. And three things, you'll see them in the sermon outline that I want to touch real quickly. This surrender becomes a lifelong spiritual practice. One of the reasons I wanted to go back through their whole life is that you could see this event didn't happen in isolation. It wasn't a one-time thing and, oh, I'd better pass the test, boom. No, they'd been through trauma, hideous trauma, and yet found grace to deal with that trauma. They'd been put in school and shaped by school, but decided to live for the Lord and had learned to surrender to God in the midst of the pressures of school. They've been in a career and working. And when everyone was threatened, they would seek God and surrender to him. Pray for Daniel. Daniel would interpret the dream. There would be deliverance. But this had been a lifelong practice. And so I would call each of us to this vision of living for Jesus personally, dealing with the hard issues, So that situation by situation, year by year, our heart has been been conformed to the Lord 
and we can live out within and we're ready for whatever comes next. You know the thing about this journey, whatever I learned last year will be part of what I need to learn what I need to learn this year. So live for Jesus personally. That's what it means with this lifelong spiritual practice. These are men who've been praying and learned how to hear the voice of God, learned how to obey, willing to to step out from the crowd because they've done it in smaller ways. A lifelong practice, living for Jesus personally. Secondly, we need to realize that the surrendered life to the living God will put us at odds with other rulers. And that's not a, a political statement only. Most of our lives are ruled by our fears or desires boy, I really want this, or what happens if I do that? Many times our wounds, our trauma, unresolved, becomes the thing that drives us. I can't take a risk. Our unforgiveness, boy, talk about poisoning relationships and futures, holding resentments. These are the things that we're at odds with if we're gonna surrender to God. To surrender to God puts us at odds with all those other things. And that means we're gonna have to live for Jesus publicly if, if the lifelong spiritual practice is about a personal change of heart, then being at odds with other rulers, external or internal, means we're gonna have to live for Jesus publicly and deal with the things as they express themselves. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and to belittle and argue and demean people. I'm living publicly. Let me tell you about this, that, or the other. But you can live in such a way that people know why you live as you do. I'll talk about some of these ways, but what would it mean to speak kindness into divisiveness where you are? What would it mean to not pick up the idol of revenge? Who was it that said, revenge is mine, says the Lord? What that means is that revenge is not mine or yours. Imagine if instead of seeking revenge, we would live publicly by speaking kindness into divisiveness. It may mean that there's times we are silent. It may be times that we avoid our agenda or conviction. I know there's many times that I choose to say, I know that's wrong. I'm gonna stay quiet and I'm gonna pray. And there are situations where a month later I discover that I was not as right as I thought. Or three months later, somebody asked me a question. Well, why did you come to that conclusion? And I need to be ready to step in and to live publicly. But that means to live with humility and for others. Because you see, a third key thing here is that the underlying issue for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is who's in control. Is Nebuchadnezzar in control or is the Lord in control? Are my fears in control? or is the Lord in control? And this is a call to live for Jesus proactively, to be deliberately, to learn week by week, day by day, to deal with my heart issues first. Imagine, just imagine, if before you had an encounter with someone who aggravates you, 
you had repented of your own self-righteousness. Imagine if you began the day grounded in the security of God. Imagine if proactively you had surrounded yourself with encouragers. You'd begun to give the scripture place in your heart and mind. You'd begin to think through with someone gospel-centered that you trust, help you live out in the gospel. See, the underlying issue with the question of survival is always about who's in control. My fears, the world, or God. I have fears. There are pressures that we all face, but who's big in your life? So I'm going to say that at the end of the day, all of us are captive to something. So the question becomes, whose captive am I? What's driving me and calling the shots in my life? Is it the surrounding culture? I love the German word zeitgeist, spirit of the age. You know, the zeitgeist is different in 2024 than it was in 1973 when I graduated from high school. Now, that 1973 zeitgeist was pretty crazy. And it was a pressure on me as a high school student. I had to choose to live differently than my fellow students, many of them. I had to choose to live differently than those who were in the bands I was playing in. But I had to begin to identify who's captain am I? Do I belong to the Lord or do I belong to this youth culture? Part of the pressure in our own time is this uh, value of self-expression. Be the real you. Well, I don't really want to be the real me. I want to be the me that I project. I don't even want to be that. I want to be the me that Jesus died and was raised for. That goal, to be the the person that Jesus has redeemed and called to his mission. But you see, if I'm pursuing self-expression, my truth, my best self, what if you could be all that God rescued and called you to be? That's a higher calling. That comes from surrender to him. Again, Fears and wounds are real and are deep. But do they call the last card in your life? I'm not saying ignore those or that it's simple. But I am saying this, that whatever the fear, whatever the wound, part of your future comes from the grace of God. Using, changing, healing. That's what it means to be surrendered to the Lord. Who's captive Am I? But Pastor Bill, there's great risk to this. I want to tell you there is. It got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in a fire. Of course, they got to see an angel. Of course, they got to come out without a hair on their head singed. They lived into something they had never planned into. But there is risk. And so the promise becomes this. We surrender to the one who has loved us best. There's a risk that I could make a mistake and get this wrong. God's love is bigger than that. There's a risk that it could deprive my children of some of the benefits, but God can make that up. There's a risk that it could cost me a business or a life or a relationship, 
but God can work in the midst of this. Surrendering to the Lord is surrendering to one who has loved us best. As I try to deal with my fears, the pressures, continually I go back to the cross and see how God was willing to love me at great cost to himself. Having been loved like that, I can now love others in a different way. I want to close with a story and an exhortation. Uh, I've been learning some church history. It's always been a fascination of mine, but reading a book, Bullies and Saints by John Dixon, I was reminded of the story of Francis and the Sultan. Uh, Perhaps you've never heard the story of St. Francis. He's a fascinating guy, how he came to faith in Christ. If you've seen the movie Jesus Revolution, remember I've told you, uh, check that out and see it. It's kind of a movie about the late 60s, 70s, a move of God in California. And I've said, I lived the Jesus Revolution in North Carolina, which was different. But at about that same time, well, imagine the Jesus Revolution in the 13th century. A fresh move of the Spirit of God, touching and changing lives, becoming salt and light wherever they are. St. Francis is kind of like that Lonnie Frisbee guy in a movie in the 13th century. And he stands out as part of the Christian resistance to the Crusades. Now, we've all probably heard of the Crusades, a very dark time in the history of the church. The Crusades were some of the worst things ever done with the approval of the church. Let me say that up front and strongly. Some of the worst things ever done. But are you familiar with the Christian resistance to the Crusades? Ever heard that part of the story? Now, again, was there enough resistance? No. They happened, but they were there. And they began in the year 10, remember that, 1059. Pope Urban II calls all Christians to unite and recapture the city of Jerusalem from the Muslims. And he says this, you can substitute this waging war, this journey, for all penance. To put it bluntly, wage war in the Crusades and your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't care who tells you that. That ain't the gospel. And any pope or church official or pastor or neighbor who would say, you can have your sins forgiven by pursuing this particular violent end is wrong. The gospel is different. That was 1059. Wait another, oh, almost 100 years Francis comes to faith in Christ. He's now this 13th century Jesus revolution, the Lonnie Frisbee of Europe. He's called by the Pope to go to the Fifth Crusade. It's been going on for almost a century. And the the Pope wants Francis to cheer up the troops so they'll wage war. But it's crazy. He doesn't do that. He goes to where the fighting is, And rather than cheer up the troops, he crosses the line and he preaches the gospel to the Muslim leader, the Sultan. Let me read to you just a few paragraphs. This is a a history professor from um, the seminary where I studied once, great fellow. He writes, the Sultan received Francis graciously and asked whether the clerics 
wished to become Muslims or had come instead with a message from the Christian camp. So he's asking Francis and his co-workers, do you want to become Muslims? Francis responded that he did not come to convert, but instead to present the sultan's soul to God on behalf of Christ. The sultan then asked his advisors, the Muslim clerics, to judge whether Francis's teaching was genuine. The verdict? The advisors urged the sultan to cut off Francis' head. The sultan conceded that he was indeed bound by the Islamic law to execute Francis and his co-workers, citing, the law forbids giving a hearing to preachers, and if there should be someone who wishes to preach or speak against our law, the law commands that his head be cut off. It is for this reason that we command you, in the name of God and the law, that you have their heads cut off immediately as the law demands. So this is what they're telling the sultan. No, he needs to be executed. However, the sultan decided against his own law because it would be an evil reward for me to bestow on one who conscientiously risked death in order to save my soul for God. We know that Francis dialogued with the sultan and his advisors for some time in an atmosphere conducive to the free exchange of ideas, while Francis presented Christ as the full revelation of God with Christianity its fullest expression, he apparently never insulted the prophet nor denigrated the religion of Islam. From a Muslim perspective, the sultan's aim was to, he saw it as establish a mission of peaceful existence with Christians. In like manner, Francis, rather than condemning, detesting, or putting himself above the Muslims, spoke with respect for their beliefs. Though Francis invited the sultan to become a Christian and was willing to put his life on the line to prove the truth of his belief, Love ruled his action. As such, risk and disgrace did not matter. Love ruled his action. So the risk and the disgrace did not matter. Francis, in his moment, had to resist the pressure of his church and of his culture. And he had to risk his own life to communicate the gospel. He's an expression of what it looks like to live a surrendered life. All for Jesus and the message of the cross. Francis had to resist that pressure and he had to take risk. He was getting it from two sides, not just one. I honestly hope that none of us ever have to face that sort of challenge or those sort of consequences. But what would it mean if we were to say, that person really hurt me with what they said or did. Still, I'm not going to pick up revenge. I'm not going to speak badly about them or try to embarrass them on social media. What would it be like around the water cooler at work, if you will, to say, it's not the decision I would make, but they're the employer, so I'm going to work hard and pray for them. Or even, if that's what it takes to be employed here, I'll need to start looking for another job. How do we make this a good exit? Everyone seems to be nervous about family gatherings in this election year. Imagine saying, I wouldn't vote for that candidate, but out of respect for the office and its importance, I have or I will pray for them. Or this, I don't feel good about everything I'm hearing 
about in our schools, but I'm glad to help as a Kids Hope mentor and be a support for a child in a tough situation and their teacher. How risky would it be for you or to me to speak kindness into a conversation of anger or divisiveness? To say no to bullying or isolating another student or, or simply pass on passing along snarky comments. You see, the surrendered life is the life we're called to live right here. We won't be dealing with a sultan. We won't have to stand up to the Pope. But you know what the pressures of your heart and your world are. I want you to see that there is one who's loved you greater than you could be loved by anything that pressures you. And he calls you to the life of surrender. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your marvelous love and great kindness. In this moment, I suspect the Holy Spirit would bring up relationships or situations, fears or pressures. What would it mean to look at those and say instead, I serve a risen Savior? Guide us, give us trusted gospel-centered counselors, bring us to your word, give us a calm, listening heart in prayer. Help us in the fullness of your grace to know and to trust who you are and all that you've done. And in this way, in this way, make us salt and light wherever you would place us. I'm going to give you just a quiet moment to reflect and let the Holy Spirit guide you to a place of new surrender. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.